0: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is your boy Dex with the Iron Pits podcast. This is your host, Dexter Pitts. With me today, I have a very, very special guest. Man, from the moment I started policing, there have just been some figures that have been a part of my police career that have stuck with me. They taught me everything, taught me so many life lessons. And I have one of those guys with me here today. And I am proud to introduce to you all one of my favorite, favorite police officers of all time, the wee Irish man himself, retired LMPD sergeant and officer Chuck Cooper. Say what's up, Chuck. Hi, Dex. Thank you for having me. Ah, Nah, man, thank you. The pleasure is all mine, my man. And so a lot of people don't know, Chuck retired from LMPD, and then he came back as a regular officer. And the one thing I always appreciated talking to Chuck before roll call was he always had a good joke prepared. Chuck, do you have any jokes prepared for right now?
1: Well, I'm going to steal one from my son today. Uh, I know police love attorney jokes, so they probably won't like this one because it doesn't disparage the attorneys, but my son's a prosecuting attorney, and uh, his favorite attorney joke is uh, when does an attorney make coffee? When? When he has sufficient grounds. (laughs) Bad
0: jokes. Uh, No, I I love it, man. That's why I need you to come back to roll call, come back (laughs) on the rehire program, my man. (laughs) So Chuck, man, tell the world who Chuck Cooper is, where you're from, and how you got started in law enforcement, and how many years you've been doing this.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, I'm from right here in Louisville, Kentucky, born here, spent most of my life here. Uh, My father was transferred around a little bit. I lived uh, three years in Lexington, Kentucky, a year in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, the United States Army sent me to Virginia for three years, uh, but the rest of that time has been right here in Louisville, Kentucky.
0: What did um, you do in uh,
1: the Army? Uh, in the Army, I was in the military police, ah. and I started out as a patrolman, ended up going into uh, the AWOL section, uh, chasing down guys who uh, who skipped out, and uh, ended up my military career as a narcotics detective in the the military calls it the drug suppression team. So uh, I worked there, uh, came home, wanted to get on my hometown police department, and was lucky enough to be selected with the uh, Jefferson Town Police right out of the Army. And then uh, spent almost four years there before uh, coming over to the Louisville Police Department and finished out my career there. Uh, did about 38 years total. Whew, about 31 of them were with the Louisville Police Department or yes. Louisville Metro as we evolved into.
0: It is hard to believe that you've been doing this as long as I've been alive. <laughs> <Ouch>. <laughs> That's a lot of life experience, but a lot of street experience,
1: man. That's I, I joke about my age, but actually I'm, I'm tickled to death that I've made it this long. I never expected to live this long. I'm glad you
0: have. <laughs> but see, what a lot of people don't realize is you have to have seasoned officers that have been around that could call BS on certain things. For example, I remember when I was a young patrolman working in the West End in the 2nd Division. I remember I was all over off of Jewel Avenue. I saw this car make a stop at a known drug house. I've been watching this house for a long time. So the car stops, circles the block, stops again. The guy goes into the house, picks up his product, leaves out, drives around the block twice more. And then when he gets far enough, far enough away from the house, I stop the car. And as I'm talking to this guy, he's a black guy, real skinny, he's got a jerry curl. He's like, What are you stopping me for, man? I was like, Sir, you know, I just saw you come from this drug house, blah, 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 blah. He goes and tells me, So the guy tells me, he's like, Man, I'm a retired LPD officer, a Louisville police officer. I was like, You ain't no retired Louisville police officer. He's just arguing me back and forth that, Yeah, I retired this year, such and such. So I was like, You know what? I'm going to call somebody who I know will be able to tell me for sure if this dude's really a retired officer. So I remember I called old Chuck here and I'm talking to Chuck and I'm telling him this guy's name. I'm not going to mention the guy's name. And Chuck tells me on the phone, he's like, let me tell you something, Dexter. That is the dirtiest cop I've ever known. He's not one of us. You better lock him up if you got anything to lock him up on. Next thing you know, <laughs> I call the canine out. Canine hits on the car, and we find some crack up under his seat. And he was just saying, man, this ain't my car. I just bought this car, man. I got the papers right here. These are not my pants. <laughs> These are not my pants. It's not my car. Oh, man. And so that's why I was always glad to have Chuck around, man. Just so much knowledge and experience. And like, if I would have called somebody else, nobody else would have been able to confirm that for me. So that's why I was glad I had you and your many years of experience, man. Because that dude would have got one over. Because there's no way if this dude was really retired, I would have been like, man, I don't know. Especially as a new benefit officer, of the doubt, yeah, benefit yeah. of the doubt. I was new guy. I want to step on, you know, step on anybody's toes, man. But yeah, that's why I was glad I had you, man.
1: <laughs> well, nobody, nobody dislikes a dirty cop any more than a clean cop.
0: Amen to that. That's. That's why I've been telling everybody with all the stuff going on this past year, like, man, y'all, you all have no clue how much we despise dirty cops. And the belief that we protect these people, no, not the least bit, man, because they make our job a hundred times harder than you, it already is.
1: You know where the problem comes in, Dex? Where is that? Is people have gotten some sideways definition of what a dirty cop is. They think there are many people out here, not, and not everybody. But there are people out here pushing the idea that any policeman who defends himself is dirty. That we are supposed to lay down and die when attacked. It happened in the Michael Brown case in Ferguson. It happened in the uh, uh, Breonna Taylor case in Louisville, Kentucky. These officers were attacked. They were fighting for their life. And the big segment of society has labeled them as if they were doing something bad, you know, and, and, and that's, that's wrong. That's terribly absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong.
0: And I tell people, there is a difference between, I have, there's different tiers of cops. You know, people think that it's just good cop, bad cop. No, I, I tell people you have good cops that do the job and they, you know, they go home. You have bad cops that are, they do the job, but they don't do it. Well, they probably have bad attitudes. They have bad days. But there's a difference between a bad cop and a corrupt cop, and those are not the same. I, I consider myself a decent cop. However, you're a been, cop. Uh, well, I, appreciate, I, I appreciate the vote of confidence. But, <laughs> the protesters would disagree from last year, though. But, <laughs> well, I don't think they knew what they were talking about. You know, it, it, But yeah, I tell people, if you go out of your way to do the wrong thing, you're a corrupt cop and we have nothing for you. We don't need you. We don't want you. Exactly. You make my job 100 times worse, and it is my job to not only protect the citizens and their rights, but it is my job to protect this uniform and this badge. Like, I love what I do. I love this profession. I know you love it because you did it for 37 years. And there's nothing that is more asinine than somebody that puts on this uniform and thinks that they can do whatever they want because they wield all this power. And they could just come in here and just start smiting people and controlling people and do whatever they want. It has driven me crazy. And I tell people, you have to differentiate between a corrupt cop and a bad cop. Because I'm a, like I said, I'm a decent cop, but I've had bad days on the street where it's just like, you know what? I don't feel like going an extra mile today. And that's only because people fail to realize we are human. I have a wife. I have kids. I get tired. I've been doing this 12 years. I'm getting older. And I'm not always at the top of my A game. And sometimes I don't want to be bothered, but, you know, I got to do my job. And regardless of what I'm going through, it doesn't matter to that person that called 911. They expect the best best product and the best officer to be there.
1: Well, they called us because they need us. And when we're to step up and do the right thing, and do a good job. And most of us do. 99% most of the of time, do. we do. We do. Uh, I know I've had days where I didn't uh, perform as well as I expected myself to. And there have even been times when I had to stop and apologize to people around me because the stress of the situation had caused me to become rude or inconsiderate, and I had to take a breath and take a step back and reevaluate the situation and and reevaluate my own response.
0: You know, and that's where and that's where it pays to have good partners who can see, like especially last year during the riots. You could look at somebody and tell, that when they were about to hit that point, right. and it was important for the sergeants and our leaders to look at officers on the line like, yo, get this guy off the line. He's about to snap. He's about to have it. So next thing you know, you'd be sitting there, somebody's in your face yelling at you, you Uncle Tom, you traitor's ass, traitor's ass nigga, blah, 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 blah. I hope your whole family dies. You know, you about to lose your job. Next thing you know, you feel somebody come to tap you on the shoulder. Next thing you know, you're being pulled off the line to go cool down. I felt I was fine. But apparently, they said my face was saying otherwise, but...
1: <laughs> well, it's good to have leaders who are who are looking out for your welfare. And that's been the biggest problem I've had with all this situation that has blown up since the uh, Breonna Taylor incident. Um, the leaders of the police department have been kowtowing to a mob and not looking out for the welfare of the officers under their watch. And those officers have uh, the same right to be looked after as the rest of the public. And their employers should be looking out for their welfare, not not trying to see who they can throw to the wolves and self feed, feed the mob.
0: There is it's it's all, you know, self preservation. Like right? and the one thing I tell people that I really not gonna say I liked about the riots, but it showed who's really the police. And who's really not, and who's just here to wear a uniform? Right. That's the one thing. I, that's the one thing good that came out of the riots was you realize who's really about it and who just wants to look good on, you know, social media,
1: exactly. you know, just
0: to wear the uniform. You know, I tell people I could not get back to the, here to Louisville soon enough. I was in Arizona. I was I had just left the border patrol and I went to the small PD. And when the riots kicked off, man, I just I knew I had to get home, and I. I had been here for i guess like what nine ten years been on srt for five years did all this training for all this and then when the actual game happens i'm not there i'm not even on the sideline i'm not even in the arena you know I'm all the way across country and so that's when i realized i had to get home and it just broke my heart seeing the guys and the girls in blue going through all this stuff during the riots man and just me being in like 1,700 miles away, and not being able to do nothing. So where were you when the riots kicked off? And like, what, what was going through your mind when you saw this, being that well, you had retired?
1: I was so torn. Uh, I was torn by the fact that I knew I was not physically capable any longer of being a police officer. My uh, body is 65 years old. My joints have been destroyed and replaced. And I'm not uh, at the level of fitness that you need to be, to wear that uniform. So I knew I could not come back and help, yet I wanted so badly to be down there, locked arms, brother to brother and brother to sister to the officers on that front line facing those mob, that mob and the violence that they were directing at those officers who were holding the line. So it was a terrible feeling. Uh, 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 it was a feeling of wanting to help and knowing I couldn't. So I just tried to help by uh, going to the uh, roll call locations and uh, helping feed the officers and just provide moral support and uh, praying for them and doing anything I could do from my end. But I knew I could no longer don the uniform and get out there on the line that I would be not up to the standard needed to meet meet that uh, mob.
0: Now, I don't know if you remember, but when I was in Arizona, I called you because I was battling in my mind with, I was like, man, should I stay in the feds or should I go back to policing at the small agency yes. or should I just cut cord and just return home? I
1: remember yeah. that. Yeah,
0: I mean, I talked to you. And that's why I was like, I'm so glad I have somebody like you in my life and help me in the progression of my career because I was lost, man. I was absolutely lost. You know, I was thinking we, I was- We've all been oh, there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I talked to you. I talked to Chief Rick McCubbin. Man, I was just looking for anybody to confirm that me leaving and going back to the place everybody was trying to escape and get out of to be a part of the riots was like, man, this guy's crazy, and literally, I might be, but like that. This has honestly been my calling, I and mean, This has clearly been your calling for thirty-eight years. Yes. Did you ever think about doing anything else besides police work while you were in the midst of your career?
1: No. Matter of fact, I once I got uh, bitten by the bug and started working in police work, in my early days in the Army, I knew the rest of my career would be involved with police work because the experience of helping people uh, and shepherding them through a difficult situation is the best feeling I've ever experienced in my life, and I knew I couldn't give it up. Uh, There were things about police work that attracted me, like the excitement and the physical, physicality of the job, but eventually what kept me in police work was the relationship with the community and the public, and that feeling of knowing that you've shown up at someone's house in the midst of a terrible crisis, and you've been able to calm them down and help them all find a way to get through it, and give them hope that there is a way out of this, and guidance, and support. And just uh, the basic uh, feeling that you had been a positive influence on a bad situation, that's an irreplaceable feeling. And I knew from that point forward that I could never do anything else.
0: You know, and I tell people a lot of things about this profession is there's a lot of delayed gratification that comes with it. So you'll make an arrest. You take this guy to jail, you know, you go to court and you don't hear anything of it. Then all of a sudden, like maybe five years later, Somebody comes up to you like, hey, you remember me? You're like, no, I really don't.
1: The famous question. Yep. Remember
0: me? <laughs> like, brother, there's hundreds of you that I've done this to, but <laughs> all justly, all justly. <laughs> and they, they, they just, wow. hey, well, you did this, then you arrested me back in the day. You changed my life. And like, it doesn't happen often. I can count the times on one hand in the it's, 12 it years I've been doing so. this. And it does happen. it's a good feeling. It's a super good feeling. And
1: uh, it's, it's one of those things where... Your integrity means everything because if you jacked him up on some kind of fake charge or some trumped up charge, uh, they're going to know it and they're going to remember that too. But if you were honest with them and you and you held them responsible for what, things that they know they did uh, and you were honest with them and you were not so judgmental with them, they will eventually appreciate what happened? Oh, 100%. And I mean, I've had family members that thanked me for it. I remember one lady,
0: said, like, you remember you locked up my son? I was like, nope. But she was like, well, ever since you did, he's been on the straight and narrow. He's going to college. You know, he's got a you know kid and a wife and doing good. You know, that's also a good feeling, man. But let me ask you, Chuck. So you've been here most of your life. Yes. What was policing like in Louisville when you started 38 years ago? Well. And what was um, the city like?
1: It's a, so I've been retired a little while now, so it was actually 40-plus years Oh, 40-plus years. Yeah. Uh, it was different than it is now in the sense that you didn't have uh, people breathing down your <clears throat> neck waiting for you to make a mistake that they could exploit. Uh, you had a lot more freedom. <clears throat> of course, there were people who took advantage of that and, and did not uh, treat the public in a way that they should have been treated. But uh, they were actually rare. Um, most of the officers out here did a great job, and they had a lot more latitude to do their job. And uh, they weren't afraid to approach a dangerous situation because back then, if you got into a dangerous situation and you had to fight or punch someone or even as go as far as to shoot someone to defend yourself... Um, you can tell the truth and you'd be okay. Most of the people who got fired back in those days were fired for lying about what happened. And usually they lied about what happened when they didn't do the right thing. So, uh, but uh, nowadays no officer is free to do that anymore. They they know that they could become political scapegoats just like uh, Officer Janes and Officer Cosgrove were made to be in the Brianna Taylor incident. Uh, they were they were fired for doing things that were absolutely essential to their survival or in the case of officer James James uh, they were fired uh, on charges that were just not realistic uh, the the charges that were brought against him for the way he wrote the uh, search warrant if they wanted to do that they could go back through and fire or Whole take whole lot of legal people. action against <laughs> hundreds of police officers and commanding officers, chiefs of police who spent time in the narcotics unit. Uh, and, and the whole thing was very unrealistic and very deceptive. And, uh, so back in the early eighties, uh, when I first came to the Louisville law enforcement community, it was not like that. It was, uh, there was a lot more, uh, uh, trust in the officers and there was the officers had more trust in the city to protect them when they did the right thing. Uh, now there's there's no trust at all.
0: So what do you think uh, brought about this change?
1: Well, part of it is a societal evolution. Uh, there is a left wing and a right wing of society, and I hope I don't fall into either one, but I've watched and both sides pull away from the reality of the center. And the left wing has become very popular. And uh, a lot of people in that wing are, are buying into the notion that police are the cause of all social ills. And and that's a false notion. That's an absolutely wrong notion. And it's all part of finding a scapegoat to blame someone for the problems of society. Uh, you cannot resolve a problem by labeling some scapegoat as the problem you have to attack the real root of the problem and it's not the police um police corruption and police misconduct should always be watched of course and it should be monitored very carefully and some of the controversial uh death related to police um you know i'm i may step on some toes but i believe that the uh Uh, killing of George Floyd was very, very wrong, that that behavior was, was appropriately uh, punished. I agree. Um, I, I believe that the killing of, uh, I think his name was Philando Castile. Oh yeah, that was up in Minnesota as well. That was horrible. That was, that was an absolute uh, outrage. And that officer was found not guilty based on no criminal intent, but what they didn't consider was uh, reckless conduct done by an untrained and cowardly officer who panicked and reacted in fear and causes death of an individual who was completely blameless. So yes, all those things should be constantly monitored. But to assume that an officer has no right to defend himself when he's attacked—that's yeah, wrong. That's, that's that is terribly you know.
0: wrong. You know the the two shootings that always stick out with me. Is the killing of Tamar Rice, the young kid I think in Ohio, Cleveland, Yeah, Cleveland? Yeah, I tell people like, man, the whole the saying "lawful but awful" because if the officer would have employed good tactics, that kid could still be alive.
1: I mean, I don't really know. uh, I've I've read basic skeletal substance of what happened, but I don't know the real insights on that one. But uh, just watching,
0: yeah, just watching the video. The, they pull up straight on this kid,
1: and then engage
0: him. And then engage him immediately. Yes, immediately. And I was like, they, like I, the first thing you're taught, you never pull yeah, in front put, of the house. Put you never distance.
1: Pull, you put some distance, and you call and out. And You call and them you out, cry him out. You him. Know, but yeah. they
0: didn't give that kid a chance, man. And they said lawful, yeah, but awful. But I was like, that was unacceptable, man. Tamara wow. Rice should still be alive. And then the other shooting, I forgot the black guy's name, but. I believe it was Robert the Robert Flager shooting in North Carolina, where the guy he's fighting with the guy, the guy takes off running, and then the cop just Walter Scott. Walter Scott, yeah, was
1: the victim, and Ugh. Michael Slager was the officer, and that was a straight up murder. that was a
0: murder, man, straight that up murder, murder,
1: God, in no uncertain terms. And then he even altered the crime scene,
0: picked up the Taser to drop and, uh, the next to him. And, yeah, that oh, was man.
1: And and I'm so thankful that he's sitting in prison doing 20 years for that. that, Uh, (laughs) I think he should have got more. Oh, way more.
0: He should never get out, man.
1: I personally believe that when a person violates the trust that they've been uh, given, a person is placed in a position of trust, whether you're a Louisville homicide detective or whether you're the uh, officer in South Carolina, when you violate that trust, your penalty should be worse than it the average person. It should. Because uh, uh, you've got, you have violated a trust.
0: And like I said, and I tell people, there's a difference between making a mistake or doing something in the heat of the moment. But going out of your way to do the wrong thing is not acceptable on any level. And I tell people, the, yeah, um, I support the thin blue line, but do not think for one minute that I'm going to let you tarnish this badge and this uniform, this profession. Exactly. I don't care who you are, man.
1: Well, the, the, that's another thing that's just uh, a lot of the uh, anti-police crowd have, they have flat out lied about what it means. It doesn't mean anything other than the, the, the line that protects society from chaos, and we are the thin blue line that stands between uh, order and chaos. And let me tell you, and, brother, uh, that
0: line is getting real thin, man. Yes, it, it is. It is.
1: And when that line breaks and chaos takes over, uh, they will want us back very badly. All this defund the police and stuff, uh, even the people shouting that from the rooftops will be sorry when the gangs take over the cities. And
0: well, and it's already started happening. Not even that, but the people shouting defund the police. They're the same ones all last year that called us to file police reports on things. Hey, no, I want this guy's name. I want, it. I want to file the report, but... You don't like us, you hate us, you want us to go away, but you still want us to serve you. Uh-huh. Like That's how I could tell Like the lunacy involved with this whole thing right. and how everything, like you were saying, the the people on the extremes have blown this thing out of proportion. right? And we are the most tangible part of the government, and we are easy yeah, we are, dangling fruit to just pick on. I heard that. a news
1: report 40 years ago refer to police officers as society's point man. Oh the only bad. government institution open 24 hours a day.
0: You ain't lying about and, that. And um,
1: that is the truth. Whatever is going to explode in society, the first person on scene will be the police officer.
0: And and I always tell people, man, the public has no concept of on-duty versus off-duty. For example, I remember I worked 12 hours. and My wife was like, hey, go to the store. I need you to get me this real quick. I was like, man, I don't want to go to the store because I'm in uniform. And so, lo and behold, I go to the store as I'm walking into the value market on Outer There's this little old white lady sitting about a block away, and I can hear her shouting to the sky and yelling and screaming. And people are looking at her. And I, and I told myself, like, man, if I, I'm off duty. I know that. But if I walk past this lady and people see me and I do not address this issue, they're not going to be like, well, that officer was off duty. They don't know no. that. We are not cabs where you got on your police car, your uniform off duty. And I knew that, hey, if I don't do the right thing here, it's going to reflect badly upon me and badly upon the police department. So I had to suck it up and go check this lady out. Of course, I was like, hey, do you want to hurt yourself? No, I don't want to hurt myself. Do you feel like hurting anybody else? I don't want to hurt nobody else. I'm just mad. Hey, okay, so be it. So I let her go back to screaming at the sky, which is not illegal. Right. She so wasn't bothering nobody else, but like I said, the public had no concept
1: of that, man. Well, many years ago, some of the large <laughs> metropolitans like New York City, they recognized that early on, and uh, they have a, if I'm not mistaken, they still have a rule that they change into their uniforms at work. They change out of their uniforms before they leave, and they do not wear that uniform off duty. And there's oh. a very there's a high value to that, Uh there's a time when you're off duty that you must step in, even when you're not in a uniform, uh, when there's a dire situation. But there are many minor incidents that you need to just let the on-duty folks handle, and uh, that's not a bad idea. I kind of wish it was like that here, but at the same time, it it's really not workable in a city of this size.
0: And it's not, and we yeah. have where we take our vehicles home. So you don't get any detachment from your job, really, especially living in Jefferson County. I remember when I first got my police car, I was excited. I drove that thing everywhere. About year eight, I was like, you know what? Take this thing, man. Everywhere. Nowhere. I was like, when I'm off, I don't touch my police car. I don't want nothing to do with it. But I tell people, I don't want to take that excitement from the new guys. You know, exactly. I remember what it was like to be the rookie officer, oh, yeah. and how excited you were, man. It, th- what we have now is, with everything that's gone on the last year, man, it's gotten to the point to where I hate seeing the new guys that are so eager and ready to go do police work, and they're being shut down by the older officers. Like I told we, I got a guy he just graduated the academy a couple months ago, you know, and he's just recently uh, went solo, and I told him, like, look, man, I've been doing this twelve years. I'm tired. I have wife. I have kids. But here, here's the deal. Don't worry about me and what I'm doing. Like, dude, if you want to go out here and make traffic stops, it is not my job to tell you how to be the police. As my buddy, Kevin Trees, sorry, retired uh, officer, Kevin Trees told me, you're a grown man with a gun and a badge. You do what you can afford to do with your career. I told him, though, it is only my job to back you up as your partner and make sure nothing happens to you. So if you make 100 traffic stops in one night, I don't have to like it. But that's what you want to do. It is my job to back you. And I'm not going to take away the new guys' enthusiasm, man. And that's why I like working around these
1: guys, man. Mm-hmm. They make
0: me, like, they remind me of why I became a police officer uh-huh. and the excitement.
1: I always felt like job as either a training officer or as a patrol sergeant was to channel that energy. <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't want to, you don't want to put a damper on energy. You want energy. But you want to make sure it's going in the right, right
0: direction.
1: place, <laughs> yeah. And I felt like I put a lot of time <laughs> into that actual task of trying to channel the energy of the younger people that either rode with me when they were coming out of the academy or the platoons that I supervised, and uh, hopefully, hopefully did the uh, good job at that. But uh, it was a st- it was a constant responsibility.
0: Oh, it was. It was, man. I remember being a young guy and being around you. I was like, man, I like this guy. <laughs> oh, man. I had some good times with you on the street, man.
1: <laughs> you know, I always, this is one of the best jobs in the world because you can have such a good relationship with the community and you can enjoy yourself at work. There are some times when it's not very pleasant.
0: Oh, the other night, and brother.
1: There are, there are always those times, but if you... uh if you continue to um, look at the bright side and to look at the runs that you handled where you were able to help somebody out and they appreciated it, you can get so much fulfillment out of this job.
0: Absolutely. And that's why I came back, man. I tell people, like, they're like, man, why'd you leave the Border Patrol? You're making, like, almost hundred grand a year. I'm like, until you've been in a police uniform and been in a police car and you made that hot run and you helped somebody and they're just thanking you, like, yo, oh, thank you so much, like – you don't realize how much that means to you and how much you love it until you walk away when I'm just patrolling in the desert chasing right. ghosts looking for people that might have came through here hours ago carrying dope, and I don't ever see anybody, you yes. know, because I thought I was Job done
1: satisfaction it. means everything.
0: Oh, it's everything, you know, and, and I'm at the point now, I've been doing this 12 years where I'm tired, but I don't hate my job. The excitement's not as... You know, it's not as exciting as it was when I started, but right. it's still there, and I enjoy it. And I know that if I leave and do something else, I'm probably going to be like, man,
1: oh, probably well, gonna. it's in my blood, man. It's a it's a calling, and it's it's a ministry that if you do it right, you will get you will reap great rewards from it. And uh, there will always be difficulties. There's uh there's uh bad guys who who can get under your skin uh, oh, yeah. there are corrupt politicians and leaders in the police department who will do anything for their own political survival and will throw you to the wolves oh, yeah. and those kind of things can really break your spirit <clears throat> and right now i feel like the the spirit of the louisville metro police is broken
0: it, it really is and sad, I want
1: to see it come back. I, want, I know it can come back. I want to see it come back. But um, it's going to take massive change to and, bring it back.
0: And that's what I wanted to ask you about. Man, what do you think it's going to take to turn the ship around? Because like I, I haven't well, been doing this long in the scope of things. 12 entire, years is not long. Uh, but I see the change, and it's dramatic.
1: The, the first change will have to be from the top. I, I don't believe this mayor has the capability to lead the Metro police. And, uh, for a mayor who has micromanaged the police department since his, his, uh, inception as mayor, uh, he always hides behind the, uh, statement that, uh, well, those decisions were made by the police department, but I don't believe that's true. No, I, I believe second. that's disingenuous. And, um, uh, I think that the administration has to change. Now, uh, Mayor Fisher cannot run again, so someone else is coming, but is it going to be another Mayor Fisher, or is it going to be someone who can relate to the entire community, to the needs of the poor, the rich, the business community, the needs of the officers on the street to enforce the law and keep the community safe? the needs of the business people that don't want their windows busted out in another riot. Uh, we need a, a leader who can take a hold of all of these problems and can work for the good of the whole city, not, not a leader who's going to you know hide behind uh, quoting policy to save himself politically. We've we got to have better leadership. And uh, with that leadership, of course, we'll need a police chief that can bring the same uh, balance of accountability versus uh, responsibility. In politics. And leave uh, officers with the feeling that if they get in a tight situation and have to use force, that they're going to be fairly evaluated, not that they're going to get a free pass, not that they're going to be uh, persecuted, uh, just that they're going to get a fair shake and that officers will know they can't do things that are wrong. And they'll know at the same time that if they do what they've been <laughs> trained to do to protect themselves, that they're not going to be crucified.
0: You know, and that, this is one thing I'll say about our new police chief, Erica Shields. Everybody has a personal opinion. Like I said, I've never met her. You know, I I, I had preconceived notions, but I will say this: she is implementing this discipline matrix to kind of blanket like, hey, this is what it is. If you do this and that, and we've never really had that. It, but the one thing I really did like that she did. So everybody remembers the riots last year, and I'm sure everybody remembers we had black officers that were marching with Black Lives Matter officers taking these and throwing up the Black Power fist in uniform. And you know, then a couple months ago. We had the officer that was, uh, I don't know if he was on or off duty, but he was down at the abortion clinic and he had on his police jacket and he had the sign, you know, he was anti abortion and he was walking around the you know, abortion clinic with the protesters. And so somebody sees it, somebody complains on the officer. And next, you know, it gets sent up and he's you know—he's put on um, administrative leave and for the investigation. You know, Chief Shields stepped in and said, "Hey, we're not going to punish this officer because it wouldn't be fair. Because we had other officers that were doing these things last year during the riot, and because of that, I really gained a lot of respect for her for doing that. You know, the, to me, I was like, that spoke values to me because she could have just took that and ran with it, but the fact that she took that and did something, you know, made it fair across the board. I respected that, but like I said, that's just one, you no, know, one facet of Interesting. her. Interesting, yeah. yes."
1: I had not heard what had become of that situation at the abortion clinic. But um, I I am very frustrated with people who cannot separate their responsibilities as a police officer versus their politics. Absolutely. I, I believe there should be a wall of separation. And I've I've worked many, many protests, some that I agreed with, some that I disagreed with, but I stayed neutral. I was there to keep the peace. And if I wanted to participate in that protest, it would have to be off duty and not as a representative in any way of the police department. Exactly. When we are in
0: uniform, we are to be impartial. Exactly. I I tell people, if you can, you know, march and protect the freedom of speech of Black Lives Matter as a black police officer, if the KKK decides to come to town and they want to try to march and have their words out there, you better provide them the same rights and the same protection that you did that your group that has your interest in mind. Because, well, the Ameri- we, uh, you know, the, the Constitution does not care about our personal opinions or political beliefs.
1: I worked a, a Ku Klux Klan protest and we had that in downtown Louisville. And when was we, that? Uh, when? Yeah. Oh, gosh, sometime in the 90s. I can't remember when. Exactly. It was a large protest. It was, they they came and stood on the steps of Metro Hall and had a big rally and had those clown suits on that they wear. And and, uh, then we had a buffer zone and then we had the anti-Klan protesters on the other side of Jefferson Street. And we had two separate entrances and the protesters had to declare which, or the participants, I should say, had to declare which group they were going to be a part of, and then we either let them go to be with the Klan or let them go to be with the anti-Klan. And uh, if one person had, like, infiltrated the other to, like, try to stir up counter-protest among the people that they were in the midst of, then we would have removed them. I don't believe that ever happened. I believe we managed to keep both groups separate. And the anti-protesters protested, the Klan protested with all their nonsense, and the two did not meet, and we stood as a wall of separation between the two.
0: See, that is very eerie because we did the same thing this past year downtown when the, in fact, the Not F'ing Around Coalition came to town to protest the Breonna Taylor Incident. I don't know if you remember watching that, but you know they were the
1: yes, black group,
0: and all black, and their weapons. And I remember we did the same thing. We set up the barricade. Hey, then we had counter protesters come to three percenters, which wasn't a lot of them. Yo, know, they were on one side, and then in fact was on the other side. And I remember standing in the middle, looking at these guys. In fact, with all their rifles, and then the three percenters with all their rifles. And the first thought, my first thought was, man, all it takes is a single spark to burn down this entire thing right now. One idiot, one idiot does something stupid, and we are sitting here caught in the middle. And our plan that day was, if they start shooting, there's nothing we can do as a police in the middle. So we're going to pop smoke, and we're going to take cover, man. Because there's literally, I mean, there was thousands of people, and there was only a couple hundred of us. Right. You know, it's just very eerie hearing you describe that. And when As soon as right. you describe that, I just started thinking about See, this the, past year.
1: The difference between those tests was that at the Klan protests that I worked at in the 90s, and uh don't, none of those people were carrying assault rifles and now everyone's carrying
0: them. everybody's got vests, tactical gear.
1: Uh, well, I uh, I'm okay with them wearing a vest. I wish they wouldn't carry uh assault rifles because uh you need to be trained and you need to have discipline to carry a weapon. And yes, the Constitution gives everyone the right to be armed. It does not give anyone the right to illegally shoot someone. No. And uh, when you have people doing that, uh, how many people got shot in the, uh, whatever their name was, nf Oh, in fact, oh yeah, Yeah. I think Uh, we had two. Two or three people people were shot by by, their own people. Yeah, by negligence of handling weapons. so you had (laughs) untrained people handling weapons that they constitutionally had a right to carry, but they also had a responsibility to know how to keep from shooting anybody. And they didn't meet that responsibility and people got shot.
0: And I can't even tell you how many times I was working downtown during all this last year and how many times I was rushed, rushed by Antifa members and BLM members carrying rifles coming to interfere with us as we're trying to arrest somebody. Right. Yeah, and people don't realize the discipline and the professionalism that oh, the officers on this department have. Our officers
1: has. have acted with tremendous <laughs> discipline. And tremendous restraint in spite of being provoked beyond measure by these people. They have been provoked to the, push them to the limit. And uh, I uh, recently, a family member of mine who was very supportive of the protests in the Breonna Taylor case. Uh, we have a difference of opinion. But... Uh, she had a right to her opinion. Well, she got the chance to see some video of what the protesters were doing to the officers. And what, well, they, at that point, they were no longer protesters, they were rioters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but what the rioters were doing to the officers, and she was stunned. And she said, I had no idea this was going on. And I said, why did you think I was so angry? Did you think I was angry because people were peacefully standing on a street expressing themselves? No, I was angry convinced. because they were rioting. And uh, she, she acknowledged the fact that this was very wrong, what had happened. And that, uh, that was kind of the summation of things. But, you know, getting back to what you mentioned about uh, those two factions the three percenters and the other guys and the whatever they are. Uh, you know, both of them, very irresponsible with weapons. And uh, constitutionality is one thing. You have a constitutional right to bear arms. You also have a responsibility to make sure that it's handled properly. And you don't get to point your weapon at people without nah. fear of <laughs> being shot. If you point your weapon at someone, they're legally justified (laughs) in shooting you dead.
0: I'm surprised we haven't had more incidents of that. I was surprised there
1: weren't more of them because there were people pointing weapons everywhere down there. It was scary, man. I tell people, uh, it was
0: definitely scary, man. The
1: police officers just walked right in between and put their lives on the line to keep some semblance of order.
0: Now, With that in mind, let me ask you this, Chuck, because we are at a time now with the police department and the city going through this change. We are critically short staffed, brother. I mean, we are oh, uh, hurting. Sure. We, I remember when I got on, I mean, you. there were thousands of people putting in to do this job. And yes. Now we're having classes in our academy of like 12, 15, 18 people. Uh-huh. Man, how do we find the caliber of officers that endured the riots last year that are still here? How do we recruit these young individuals that want to go and serve the community. How do we convince them? Because
1: well, it's, let's,
0: it's not about the pay because they're offering us pay yes. and it's really not, it's not enough, man.
1: It's simple. The, the way you will attract the caliber of officer that you need. And they are out there. There's a, there's a large segment of our society that are honorable people that would make fine police officers, but the way you attract them is you change this place back into a place where it's it's uh, reasonable to work here, uh, where you can work here without fear of being railroaded and being scapegoated and being the victim of a political witch hunt. Now, when you make it to where it's a, it's a place to work, where you can uh, do an honest day's work and expect the uh, support of your employer if you do the right thing, then you'll start attracting people. I came to the Louisville police from the Jeffersontown police. Completely In 1986. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people said that. Um, I took a $5,000 cut in pay to come to the Louisville Police Department. Now, Jeffersontown was a fine place to work. Still there were is. good people. The chief out there was Fred Romley at the time, who was a fine police chief. The only reason I left was because the level of activity I had was based around primarily traffic-related incidents. And I wanted to learn all of policing. I wanted to learn what it was like to police the rough neighborhoods, the high crime areas. And Jefferson Town was kind of a middle-class suburb where there wasn't a lot of that going on, which I'm thankful that's that's a good thing. But um, when I came to uh, Louisville, I took a cut in pay. I didn't make my decision based upon the paycheck. I made it based upon job satisfaction and the chance to get an opportunity to work for a very good police department and to learn policing inside and out. So those people are out there, and they can be recruited, but we've got to eliminate the cancer top of the city. And once that's shoved out of the way... And if voters bring in another Mayor Fisher, Louisville police is in big trouble, and Louisville community is in
0: big trouble. Well, well I'm afraid of what is coming next because of some of the individuals that are actually running. You know, I, and, it, and I tell people, man, you have to look at how Louisville was. When I started policing here in 2009, 2010, we would get like maybe 50, 60, 70, 80 homicides a year. And then since Mayor Fisher's come in— man, I've never seen the numbers that we do now. We've always always responded to shootings, but now it's it's almost guaranteed every shift there's going to be a shooting.
1: I can explain that to an opinion. This is my unscientific, unresearched study. When you neutralize the police's (laughs) ability to do their job and you punish them for every aggressive act they take, then they're not going to be aggressive. They can't. They cannot go out and do proactive policing for fear of being suspended or fired and losing their livelihood and their pension. Exactly. So when you do that, as has been done to this police department through the Breonna Taylor incident, once you've done that, you've neutralized the police. Well, these uh, gang members and drug dealers are not stupid. Uh, They may be dirty, but they're not stupid. And they know when they can shoot people. And get away with it. And right now, Louisville is an open city.
0: It's a war zone, man.
1: It is it's It is open zone. to getting away with murder. Because the homicide detectives are grossly overwhelmed. The patrol units cannot police. They cannot aggressively go out here and look for the people that are wanted on these murders. They can't uh, make a traffic stop without fear of, of being fired. Um, everybody wants uh, the police to be nice. Well, that's nice. You should be nice to nice people, but there's times when you have to be aggressive and proactive in order to remove the bad element from society. And if you take away the police's ability to do that and the police become just a scarecrow to stand on every corner, then crime will run rampant. And right now, the word is out that whatever's going on in Louisville, you settle it with the uh, a homicide and you're and you're covered
0: you know the other the thing that gets me right now i know the department's wanting us to push and be more proactive but not in this environment but the other thing that makes me really not want to be proactive all the people we arrested last year we had dead to rights during the riots that were causing destruction causing chaos destroying property fighting and shooting at people all of these charges were dropped none of these people will ever have their day in court for this stuff But you want me to go out here and be proactive and possibly stop an actual decent law abiding citizen and issue them a ticket for like a minor traffic infraction and have them go to court for something minor. But we're letting these criminals and all these extremists run rampant and wild and never be held accountable for their actions. But you want me to give this soccer mom a ticket, you know, for,
1: you know, to me, that's not right. Proactivity should have a goal. You don't go out and be proactive proactive, so you can be Barney Fife, writing tickets to people for meaningless, exactly uh, minor, small infractions. You may stop cars for those small infractions, but when I learned how to be a policeman in the 1970s and the 1980s, that was done to gain information about who you were dealing with. When you when you witness a car turning without a turn signal, and you made a traffic stop, and you discovered he was a known drug dealer, then you learned who was in his car with him and who his associates were, and if you smelled marijuana coming from burning marijuana coming from the car, you conducted a search and you made an arrest based on probable cause and all this starting out from a minor trafficking violation.
0: Pretext that. But
1: when, well, it was a stop based on a violation of law. Yep. And, but, uh, proactivity should have a goal. Now, if you stop someone for not using their turn signal and you've learned some information about who they are, Then it's your discretion whether or not you believe that 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 violation warrants a citation or a warning or, you know, an oral warning or just please be more careful so we don't have a traffic accident. But um, proactivity leads to... You know, that's why they came up with these things called field interview cards many years ago, which now are, I'm sure, computerized. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But uh, all that information was gathered to learn who the criminals were. And if you tell people you can't talk to anybody anymore because you might step on their toes... And you don't get that information. And when there's a homicide, nobody knows who's who. Nobody knows who runs with who. Nobody knows anything.
0: And that's what they're trying to focus on now: is this uh, data-focused, data-driven policing. You know, but the, I tell people I understand that. But in patrol, I can see you know the criminal investigation, the te- detectives that do that. They have the data, but the guys in patrol, we don't have access to that data.
1: What is that data-driven policing? I'm not it's
0: where they uh, they know who people involved in certain acts and in certain areas. Man, like, I don't know much about it, but they well, use how that info. are they info. supposed to
1: gather that data without <laughs> being proactive?
0: Exactly. I and heard, how are
1: you supposed to be proactive if you're risking your job every time you take an action?
0: I, I heard, a, I believe it was a colonel or former police chief, Gentry, she said, uh, we need to stop casting the net far and wide and just catching everybody in the net. You know, and just catching a young kid that's got weed, you know. Well, when we
1: first started the focus (laughs) on returning to community-oriented policing, that was in the 90s when that became the buzzword. And one of the things that they taught, which was very valuable, was that you can do a lot and you can inconvenience people a lot if you explain why, and if you disengage properly. Now, those things are not, I don't know if they're being done now or not, but it's critical when you stop someone to explain why you stopped them and to disengage properly. And, uh, but part of the well is already poisoned. When you have groups like Black Lives Matter, and uh antifa antifa and some of these aclu Uh, don't get me wrong black lives do matter (laughs) oh yes every it's a universal truth uh black there are many people wearing that t-shirt who are good people absolutely but there's an organization out here whose only goal is to get police officer killed and uh black lives as as a louisville activist once called them black lives matter inc is the problem Exactly. the people wearing the black lives matter t-shirts are not you know but uh, when you have these organizations that have convinced young people everywhere that every policeman is out to kill you and if he stops you your life is in jeopardy oh yeah and then you know it's impossible to conduct a civil traffic stop with a person who believes that
0: absolutely because they're automatically at level 100 right. Expecting the worst, expected to be killed, and then when that cop approaches well, that car, they've
1: been lied to, they, every, and they've been, and just, they've been, they've been told a falsehood. <laughs> and those people that say those things, they're they're doing a terrible disservice to those young people. They're ruining their lives. They're, they're ruining
0: an officers' lives.
1: Well, that too. Everybody. But if you look at the whole community, who is hurt the worst by by people believing uh, number one? That uh, black people cannot advance because they will always be suppressed by the white people. It is always who the black loses community. out the most. The black, black people community. who should be the achievement, who should be the community leaders, who should be the doctors, lawyers, businessmen, mayors, governors, those people that are among the black people who've been told don't even bother trying. They all hate you. You're They're behind the power curve. You. Yeah. If you tell somebody that, you're ruining their life. It's what I call the philosophy of hopelessness.
0: And that and not even that and I told people that's been passed down for generations, man. Oh many yes. generations. I mean, that's well, in my
1: family. I understand racism <laughs> throughout the world. I grew up in a white neighborhood and had many people living around me who were very bigoted during the civil rights marches of the early 60s. Some of my next-door neighbors were downtown heckling the marchers. Oh, wow. Now, my mother took us to participate in the civil rights marches of the 60s, which leads me to ask, you know, like, why was I a member of the civil rights movement to protect open housing laws, and voter rights. And then when I grew up and put on a uniform, I was labeled as a racist. Mm. I don't. I never could understand that. I was a child to believe in the dignity of the human being and the, the God-given sanctity of life. And, and then people are looking at me and going like, you're a bigot, you're a racist. Uh, at one of the protests, one of the Louisville leading activists at the time got in my face and told me I was a member of the Ku Klux Klan.
0: <laughs> was that uh, Lewis Coleman? <laughs> no, uh, it, it's another
1: activist who's, so but, we'll you know, leave his name I out.
0: I tell people but, they they do yeah. that because, man, there's big money to be made in racism, man.
1: Well, I know racism exists. I, I, I'm not one of those people denies its existence. Uh, if people really cared about racism... The first place they would go after is like check cashing operations and predatory lending. the stores, predatory, predatory lending. Yes, those people are robbing the underclass of their ability to financially succeed.
0: Yeah, they get them high interest loans and, and all they that steal
1: everything they own.
0: <laughs> and then they say, through oh, lending. Yep, and the liquor and stores in the black communities. There, there is
1: racism. It's really more of a haves versus have nots but however you want to look at it there are people out here who will hurt the underclass
0: every Tuesday, and i believe
1: that and i always felt like it was my job to defend people and protect people who were being preyed upon and i and now there's there's groups of radical activists who have decided these are the problem well i thought i was the solution when i was a policeman
0: (laughs) but uh I don't know. You know, and, and I tell people, you know, like these groups like Black Lives Matter and all these false narratives being put out that, you know, y'all out here just killing. Pardon my language, but all last year, you out here just killing niggas, man. And I tell people, look at the numbers. The facts do not show that. And I always tell people, i work worked with you in the West End. I've seen you uh, save countless black lives and many other white officers save black lives.
1: That's where your mistake was. You can never... All of these these hype movements are based on emotion, not facts. Exactly. If you look at any uh, right extremist, left-wing extremist, they're all, I mean, like right now, I mean, we're in a bad situation in America with the pullout of Afghanistan, but some of the things the right wing is saying are not true, No. but they're (laughs) whipping up the hype against the left and the administration, the current presidential administration, it works no matter which side they're on. The radical element of any movement basically preys upon emotion and not facts. And you can't get people to listen to facts once their emotions are hooked.
0: Well, I I actually mentioned it on my podcast recently. I talk about the incident at the Capitol on January 6th. it is so bizarre you know, that we now have p- people on the far right th- that usually typically support the police and support the Thimble Line that are now calling for the officer that shot and killed Ashley Babbitt. They're calling for this officer to, you know, be killed, persecuted and thrown in jail because he shot an unarmed white woman. But on the same end, we now have people on the far left that typically go after the police and make... Heroes and make you know martyrs out of people that are unarmed and killed by the police. You know, it's like it's polarizing verse, and they turned Ashley Babbitt into you know this this hero on the right man. I'm like, she's not a hero to me. Like, and nobody at the Capitol that day to me is a hero.
1: Anybody to me, when you participate in a riot, you are a rioter. And exactly. I don't care what flag you're carrying.
0: It don't matter.
1: It doesn't matter. If you step outside the norms of society and start hurting people and start breaking things and burning things and shooting people and throwing rocks in bottles and storming buildings and deciding that you're going to take over the United <coughs> States Congress— you are a rioter. I don't 100%. care which flag you're carrying.
0: And that's why I tell people, just because we have this, like, the same skin color don't mean we got to agree on everything. Just because, you know, I tell people, I'm a conservative, but there's nothing about January 6th as a conservative that I support. And there have been people that told me that, oh, you're not a true conservative. You're not a true patriot. Man, yeah, I don't well, co-sign on foolishness. That's how,
1: that's how the radical element of any group tries to shame people into believing that their way is the only way.
0: And there is no such thing. And there's
1: no such thing. No
0: such man. thing, man. And that's why I say I am conservative. But that's why I've always loved and appreciated about you is you're a straight shooter, and you you call BS BS regardless <laughs> of what it looks like. You know who's saying well, it. Thank you. But, you man, know, I hope <laughs> regardless, so. you know. But man, but now, before, there's
1: times I've had to reevaluate my position many times. Oh, but. same here, man. Same here. I, you know, I've changed
0: over the years. I've gone. I used to be on the pretty far left but one time and i've gone pretty far right but now as i've gotten older and I've been doing this a while i hate to say i don't care as much but i just i just see bullcrap for what it is right you know like going through these contract negotiations with the city right now for the police contract i don't have the ability to actually just sit and go cut through all the paperwork and the legal jargon i just my mind i just not built for it, man but I just got to a point in life where I just know bull crap when I see it, <laughs> you know. Right. I don't have to think long and hard about it. I'm like, no, oh, somebody's about to screw exactly. us, man. I don't have to think about it. But man, before we get ready to go, you know, since we're talking about, you know, policing in the black community and all this, man, you undertook a project to honor Louisville's first f- black female police officer.
1: Yes, well, man. me and several that. people together.
0: Okay, yeah, Yeah. tell me about that, man. How did this thing start and happen? Well, we were having
1: an internet chat among retired officers on a a Facebook page for retired officers. And someone posted the story Of of Bertha Wedby, who was the first female black officer hired by the Louisville Police Department in 1922, almost 100 years ago. Now, I can't even imagine the obstacles that young woman faced to be a police officer at a time when race relations, when black people were treated so horribly and so unequally. Well, in the story, it mentioned that Officer Wedby and her husband, Dr. Wedby, were lying in an unmarked grave in Louisville Cemetery resting in an unmarked grave and we began the chat and we said this is terribly wrong this woman was a trailblazer her husband was a trailblazer they both were uh he was involved in the red cross hospital uh that was founded under his watch uh (laughs) she was um hired to assist with uh young black females who had been arrested by the Louisville Police Department and to help in those investigations. And uh, so we started talking and we said, we can do this, uh, the, the small group of us. It was about six or seven retired officers and we all said, we could do this. We could pass around the hat and get enough money for a, for a tombstone that would properly recognize her. And so what eventually led to a GoFundMe page was how we, we really were able to raise the money. Um, we, uh, my slogan that I came up with was, we need just a few dollars from a lot of police officers. And this went national, and I had donations coming in from Wisconsin, from California, wow. from Texas— from Wyoming. I had them coming from all over the country, had a lot of donations from the Louisville area, a lot of police officers, a lot of retired police officers, a lot of citizens and civilians who just wanted to see this lady recognized. And with the great deal of assistance from the man who ran the cemetery, we were able to procure a, a very nice tombstone with a inscription on it honoring her service and uh, inscription on her husband's side of the tombstone honoring his service to louisville and uh we had a, a wonderful dedication we treated it just like a, a police funeral we uh, had the honor guard come and we had uh speakers from the black community we had speakers from the police department the then chief of police attended with all of his staff and we had representatives of Metro Council present, and uh, just had a beautiful ceremony. The only thing that we weren't able to do, and I was saddened by that, was we were not able to get any of her descendants to participate. Oh, no? And we only located one woman who was her descendant, and she lived far away and uh, just chose not to participate. I believe uh, Bertha Wedby was her great-grandmother, and she really didn't know her and didn't feel connected to the story. But I would have loved it had she chosen to come and participate. But I understand. That's a legacy, man. But it was a wonderful thing, and that tombstone is still there. (laughs) I go by there occasionally and kneel and say a quick prayer, thanking God for the gifts we've been given and the people like Bertha Wedby that we've been given.
0: And the people like you, my man.
1: Well, you're very kind.
0: Oh, now nah, I'm telling you, brother. Like God, you've input so much into me, and, just, and it just shows your character. You and the, the retired guys of what you know, what police officers are really made of at the end of the day, regardless of what the media is saying. It was police officers that came together. I don't even know the you know, the genetic makeup of you all in the group, but the fact that we y'all came together to pay homage to. The first black female police officer in Louisville from nineteen twenty two, in a time where people really didn't want us around. To do that today in the day and age where people are saying police hate black people, that just speaks volumes to how false that is, man.
1: Absolutely. And just
0: not even that, just you the way you've poured into me and my career and the things you've taught me and taken me under your wing, man. I'm truly appreciative of you, brother. Absolutely, man. Well, I got so much thank respect you for you your very love, much.
1: man. I have great respect for you and I <laughs> Always loved to work with young and intelligent and energetic officers. Now that my energy's kind of (laughs) ebbing away and my intelligence is kind of fading out, so (laughs) I'm right
0: behind you on the intelligence part, bro. (laughs) No,
1: things technologically have changed so fast. I think of when I was a detective. You know, we used a phone book and we used a. You know, we used all the criminal records, like arrest records and pawn records to track people down, but I didn't even know how to use the internet when I was a detective in the 90s. It was just coming into being.
0: I'm telling you, man, this and, this uh, profession developed so fast. Like Even when I started, my first police car in 2010, I didn't have a computer in that thing, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was just that open center console, my bag with all my gear, and my paperwork, bro, and I just went, exactly. man. It had your little pad when you they called you call your run out, write it down, all the descriptions you need.
1: <laughs> I was uh, I was retired from my first twenty nine years before I ever got a computer in my police car. That Man. came after I returned from retirement. What year, did so, you, what year did you retire at first? Uh, 2008. 2008. Okay, yeah, that was right. Yeah, you retired right. And then I came back immediately and did nine more years as an officer, as a well, patrol officer. I'm glad
0: you came back and I got the chance to work with well, you,
1: Well, I make. was glad to work with you,
0: that's for sure. A lot of good times, brother. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> and nobody ever got in trouble because well, we always held each other accountable, and you I, are a man I, of character. <laughs> I, kn- I knew
1: that when I came back as an officer that I was not going to try to take on the role of sergeant that I had left with. But I also knew that if I saw somebody getting ready to step on a landmine, I was going (laughs) to stick out my hand and go, you might not want to do that. And that was helpful many times. So, um, you know, I was glad I was able to do that. You know, and,
0: and I'm telling you, like when you start this job, the time goes so fast. You know, when I came back and the first thing, you know, the sergeant's on the platoon's telling me and the major's like, Hey, I'm gonna need you to look after these new guys. I'm like, hold up, what? I'm a new guy. Yeah, I I feel I'm (laughs) only 12 years in. And they're like, no, you like, we really need you to step up and help because these guys are so young and fresh. And I'm like, I remember being that guy. I still feel like I'm that guy sometimes, man. But you know, that's what we have to do in this profession, man. We have to pay it forward. And we do that best by, you know, teaching these guys to do things the right way. Don't take shortcuts. And also to protect the profession and protect our citizens. I always tell people, man, like when I see somebody, a homeless guy on a lot of a store, he's hassling people trying to go to the store and like bothering them. I always tell them, Don't bother, leave my citizens alone. And and I don't say that as a way of possessing the citizens like I own them, but I take ownership of the citizens in the no, city as to where I protect them. They
1: hired you for their sake.
0: Exactly. And I don't like and- seeing people mess with especially you know when people just right. come in here to you know live their life but at the same time i gotta protect that guy as well you know yes, how, exactly. this, is, this is i love this profession man and you know i hate what it's become recently with all the media and the negativity but i know what it is at the end of the day and that's why i continue to do it
1: right well you're an outstanding example of total commitment in spite of the danger and the, in spite of the negativity and in spite of the bad work environment that's been created by this administration
0: yeah brother. I, so, I definitely don't do it for the money <laughs> yes. well uh, chuck man i'm gonna let you go man i can't thank you enough for coming on to the iron pits podcast you are I'm, always welcome i'm to flattered
1: and honored that you chose to put me on here so awesome.
0: thank you hey, it is my pleasure ladies and gentlemen retired lmpd officer chuck cooper this has been the I Am Pits Podcast. As you all know, you can listen to the I Am Pits Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Pod, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now I'm on Amazon Music as well. If you could, please go and rate the show on Podbean, leave a comment, or you can also rate the show and leave a comment on Apple. And as always, thank you all for tuning in. You all don't know how much it means to me, but every click, every download means the world to me because... I never imagined that I'd be getting ready to do 30 episodes. So thank you all for tuning in. Continue to share the show. And just remember, take it easy on the cops, man. We're in a rough time right now. Hey, hold us accountable for the wrong we do. But don't hold us accountable for the things that we don't do wrong that other people are putting on us that are false. All right, man. Thank you all so much. Y'all take it easy and we will see you on the next one.